0: The Responsible Investing Podcast by Aberdeen Standard Investments.
1: You are listening to the Aberdeen Standard Investments Responsible Investing Podcast, where we speak to a range of guests on all things relating to responsible finance. I am Amanda Young and my guest today is Jeremy Lawson, Aberdeen Standard Investments Chief Economist and the head of our Research Institute. Welcome, Jeremy.
0: Hi, Amanda. Pleasure to be here today.
1: Now, Jeremy has been a professional macroeconomist for over 20 years. During this time, he's held a range of positions in both the public and the private sectors, including the Reserve Bank of Australia, the OECD in Paris, the Institute of International Finance and BNP Paribas. He covered a range of economic and political issues, including European public policy, issues on climate change, global macroeconomics and Fed policy, to name just a few. Now, Jeremy was the chief economist of Standard Life Investments before becoming the head of Aberdeen Standard Investments Research Institute. Prior to embarking on his career and after finishing his MSc in Public Financial Policy at the London School of Economics, Jeremy took a sabbatical to undertake a really interesting role. He was the advisor to the then Australian opposition leader, Kevin Rudd, on economic and climate policy. Something that has proved very useful in his current climate work, which we will come on to a little later in this podcast. Outside of politics and macroeconomics, Jeremy is a fan of rave music. And I believe that when he was younger, he loved to go to all night raves and he still listens to this on his walks to work. And when not listening to rave music or being a leading voice on the fiscal issues of the day, Jeremy can often be found outside playing cricket or football with his two sons. So I'm absolutely delighted to have Jeremy here today. As an economist, he can bring a unique perspective of how environmental and social matters intersect with macroeconomic ones. Jeremy, perhaps we can start by hearing a little more about how you came to work for Kevin Rudd as the opposition leader in Australia. Maybe you can touch on what you were asked to do in this role and how this now relates to the work that you have done in your career.
0: Yeah, sure. So the background is that When I finished high school, within a few months, I joined the Australian Labor Party. So through a really large proportion of my 20s, particularly my mid-20s, I was very actively involved in Labour Party politics in South Australia sort of around the fringes but a lot of my friends became political advisors a number of them became MPs some reaching quite senior roles it's sort of over time I'd sort of drifted toward you know my professional work as an economist went overseas to study but when Kevin Rudd became opposition leader he was espousing you know views around public policy that gelled a lot with my own the conservative government had been in power for a decade at that point it sort of felt like there was a need for change. And so I sent a letter to his office saying, look, I'd be very interested to work for you. I think I've got some skills that might be helpful. And the office got in touch and within a month or so I was working in Canberra.
1: And perhaps you can touch a little bit on the work that you were asked to do because I think that was probably unexpected.
0: Yeah, it was strange because I thought again I was working as a macroeconomist at the Reserve Bank of Australia, right? That's what I regarded as my bread and butter. I was very interested in broader public policy issues, but if I'm being completely honest, climate change, environmental issues were not something that I had focused much on. I was more interested in, say, labor economic issues and those sorts of things to the extent that it was different from macro. But then when I arrived on the first day, Kevin and his chief of staff said, look, climate change is going to be a really big focus of ours in the 2007 election. Because it's a big focus, we're worried the government are going to run a scare campaign against our policies. So what we want to do is we want to pitch climate change and climate mitigation as an economic issue, as an economic imperative for Australia. Uh, And so we need an economist to run that rather than an environmental expert. And so whilst well, so I could certainly understand the logic, I mean, I did feel initially uncomfortable because it meant that I had to spend, you know, the first few weeks dramatically getting up to speed, not just on what the Labor Party had been saying around climate related issues for some time, but get into a position where I could effectively write the party sort of policy for that upcoming election, you know, through a very steep learning curve and quite a lot of 18 hour days, which are common in politics. I got there eventually but it was definitely an unusual pathway to developing that interest and expertise in climate related matters
1: and really in hindsight industry leading as we know environmental social governance research has long had its foundations in micro investments in understanding how companies manage environmental social risks within their business but more recently there's been more macro view on esg factors and i'm really keen to hear a little bit from you as an economist, how these types of issues are really affecting the work that you are now doing within the Research Institute.
0: Yeah, look, something that's been clear, and climate is one example, but not the only example, is that almost every ESG-related issue that you can think of has a macro dimension to it. So climate, of course, right, climate policy is primarily determined by national governments through national regulatory means. So it sort of it influences companies, absolutely, but it does through macro policy channels. So you have to have a perspective on those drivers, to think very carefully and seriously about the risks and opportunities facing individual companies. And certainly, individual companies can't solve the climate challenge on their own. So, it's a perfect example of where there's a strong intersection between the macro and the micro, between the economic and the financial and the political and the policy. But it extends into other areas. You know, Amanda, you and I have talked quite a lot about labor economic issues, right? So, labor rights. Well, again, labour markets are regulated primarily by national governments. Any regulatory change has important implications for how labour markets function in the aggregate, as well as the distribution of outcomes. Individual companies sit within broader labour markets, right? And so the things you might ask a company to do, they have to be taking into account, well, how will other companies operate? What are the implications for my margins, my market share? So what we've done is, I think, identify that because not just that there are macro dimensions of ESG issues, but many of the drivers of change in the ESG space are coming from national political changes and and regulatory and policy changes, that we need frameworks that allow us to understand what the drivers are, what is changing, so that we can sort of better incorporate that into a whole of business approach to ESG. And just finally, on top of that, that actually macro investing itself should be shaped by ESG factors. So there's no particular reason why your primary focus should be what a company is doing. Many of the investment decisions we make are effectively, for example, financing governments So we're financing governments, if we're providing capital to governments, well, why should we not take ESG factors into account, particularly to the extent that they influence, you know, the return outlook for them? And so what we're trying to do is build a lot of tools in conjunction with your team, Amanda, to sort of mean that we can better harmonize the macro and the micro, synthesize them. And I think that becomes quite a powerful approach to ESG and something that I don't think a lot of other firms do in the way that we are.
1: No, I would entirely agree Mm -hmm. and I think over the past couple of years you've worked very closely with the ESG investment team on climate change particularly. I'm really keen to explore the tool that you've been developing to help our clients understand the various climate scenarios Mm -hmm. and how these affect their portfolios. Can you tell me why you felt this was a key priority for you and maybe give us an outline of the work that you've undertaken so far?
0: Sure. so I think it's a priority for a couple of reasons. So one is that climate change, whether we're talking about physical climate risk or we're talking about climate transition risk, which is related to you know attempts by the private sector, government to mitigate climate change, is profoundly changing the investment landscape. You know we see this in real time although there's obviously a sense in which governments are lagging behind what is necessary. There's still been a very significant reduction in the carbon intensity of most advanced economies over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, we're seeing really significant changes in the energy mix across sectors and across countries. This is only going to continue and in many cases it's likely to accelerate. And so I don't think that we can be a credible investment company, a credible asset manager, unless we have a rigorous way of assessing what those forward-looking changes mean for investment risk and opportunity so that was one that's the most important driver and the second driver is my personal interest in in it itself right I sort of think as an economist with my background and climate policy and climate economics. You know, I wanted to make a contribution to something that I think is going to be vital to the future of the company and and, and also to the interests of our clients and asset owners. And so I think if we do something unique in this space, really rigorous, then we'll sort of generate insights that others aren't, and that can be really powerful.
1: Obviously, the climate space is going to continue to evolve and much depends on how committed policymakers are to introducing climate-related regulation and the right type of regulation for us. So how can you see your work and the tools, the scenario analysis tools developing going forward?
0: The most important thing that we did with our exercise that differentiates it, I think, from what is common is the way that the scenarios themselves are designed. So what's most common in this field is that a company, an asset owner, asset manager that decides to embark on a climate scenario exercise, they'll find an external partner to work with. And then their partner will say, well, here's a menu of scenarios that you can work with to try and identify the aspect of climate risk that you're interested in. Usually these focus on tail risks. So either, for example, Full Paris alignment, you know one and a half degree, net zero two thousand fifty type commitments what the implications of those are for portfolios or alternatively more extreme physical climate risk so what happens if the world doesn't act? But there are a couple of things that are often missing first of all, the bulk of the probability distribution, right, in terms of what's going to influence asset prices falls between those two extremes. So there is an energy transition that is taking place, but it is definitely not taking place quickly enough to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, in part because you just don't have the regulatory and policy alignment that is required and, and the outlook in a lot of parts of the world you know, isn't positive enough to make that a central view so point one was we had to have a view about the forces that were shaping you know the central view of what the future looked like because you can't make an investment decision unless you have a perspective on that and the second was because these scenarios they have these simplifying assumptions and and one of the simplifying assumptions is that policy climate policy regulatory so whether it's formal carbon taxation emissions trading schemes or just the command and control sort of mechanisms like emission standards building codes They're effectively applied uniformly across sectors and geographies. So European climate policy is pointed in the same direction as Chinese policy, is pointed in the same direction as Indonesian policy. The policy towards the power sector is the same as the building sector. But the reality of the world that we live in is much messier than that. You have enormous divergence across countries, across sectors, And if we don't take that into account in our analysis, then we just won't assess the risk and opportunity facing individual countries and the companies in the right way, we'll misestimate And so what we've done is we've built an approach that allows us to take into account the reality of that dispersion of policy incidents when we're designing the scenarios. And that makes us a lot more confident that the estimates that we have of the impact of those scenarios, thinking about it probabilistically, will be a useful guide to investment decision making.
1: I'm really excited about the work that you've done. And this is going to be a big year for us with Culp. So watch the space Jeremy, I know you're an avid reader. I've always asked my guests for some sustainability related inspiration for our listeners. Perhaps you could share your book, TV, or other recommendation that has recently inspired you. One of my passions
0: is history. I like to read a lot of nonfiction primarily, and often it does have an intersection with my work. So there's this book that was published last year. It's called The Boundless Sea A Human History of the Oceans. It was written by david Abulafia, and it's a long sweeping history of humans relationship with the oceans patterns of migration patterns of trade across the ocean sort of stretching right back to prehistoric times in many cases but then working right through towards modern times you might think well how is that related to sustainability Well, it's related to sustainability because the oceans give sustenance to human life, right? They have a fragility that we misunderstand. A lot of aspects of climate change itself relate to the influence of human activities on the climate and the way that these things interact through surface sea temperatures through sort of changes in the underlying sort of temperature of oceans how that influences weather patterns and so i think that the more you're connected to that deep understanding of just how important that relationship is between humans and economic activity and the underlying health of the physical environment including the oceans then it sort of makes it more tangible why we're taking steps to tackle climate change and why that is important, and it goes beyond climate change because I know Mandy, you know, we do a lot around sort of plastics and and you know a lot of pollution that sort of ultimately ends up in the oceans and and influences the sustainability of life within them. So that's my book. Not only will you learn a lot about history and what connects peoples across sort of wide distances and ways that you might not otherwise have understood, but you'll sort of understand why protecting oceans whilst maintaining that very fragile equilibrium that exists physically and economically is is so important.
1: That is a great recommendation and obviously a topic close to my heart. So thank you very much for that. We're nearing the end of our time together, sadly. So finally, perhaps we can just get your view on how responsible investment matters will continue to be embedded in economic research and macro investment decision making going forward.
0: I think there's two channels. So one is what we've already talked about before, right, is that most of the responsible investing issues that we care about have a macro dimension. And so that's important. But I think it's also important to think about the causality running from the other direction. So think about income inequality. Income inequality has been a long-running trend in the advanced economies for the last few decades. It has complex causes, but it is a really important driver of the fragmentation of our political environments, you know, whether that's sort of in the you know in the UK, in the United States, continental Europe, right? So inequality is one of the reasons why you're seeing this evaporation in the political consensus, polarization in the political climate, changes in policy making itself. So my view has always been That you can't be a credible forecaster of the economic outlook, particularly over the long term, unless you've got a clear understanding of the policy drivers of the economic environment, where those policy drivers are not just what the Fed's doing um, or what the government's doing with fiscal policy, but it's much broader than that but policy is ultimately determined by politics. And so if you don't have a perspective on the underlying political forces that are shaping the policy environment, and they really strongly relate to different aspects of the responsible investing agenda, then we can't really be useful in offering a guide to our clients and internal sort of stakeholders about what they should expect. So it runs in both directions. We need to understand it because it's gonna shape the investing environment. And so to my mind it has to be sort of central, you know, in the agenda of the research institute. And again, one of the reasons why we're working so closely with your team and other teams within the company to make sure that we've got a rigorous foundation for that analysis, forward looking rigorous foundation for thinking about how this is going to be shaping the outlook going forward.
1: Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really have enjoyed having you as my guest. This has been really inspiring and it is fantastic to see how far we've come embedding ESG matters into economic thinking. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us.
0: It was a pleasure, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Next time, maybe we can have a soundtrack of some sort of trance music in the background. (laughs) That would be great.
1: Now that ends our discussion for today. You've been listening to the Aberdeen Standard Investments Responsible Investing Podcast, aiming to bring you insights into all things responsible investment. To those who have tuned in, be it your first time or regularly, thanks for listening. You can find all of our previous podcasts on our website. Until our next podcast, goodbye for now.
0: Thank you for listening to the Responsible Investing Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen Standard Investments. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more great content, visit aberdeenstandard.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.